Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be starting in verse 18. We're going to go all the way through verse 25. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. All of us in this room, if we were to go around the room and ask if you could identify some problems in your life, I think everybody in here would probably be able to come up with, I don't know, a thing or two, right? We're not going to do that, by the way. We're not going to go around. But if we did, no matter who we are, young or old, we would probably be able to come up with more than enough to fill a sheet of paper of the problems that are going on in our lives right now. It could be problems very severe as health issues or or financial problems, or marital problems, or it could be some more simple problems, but all of us could identify with problems. We all have issues. In a former life, we used to do uh, for employees what we would call root cause analysis, where an employee would have a problem and they would come um, for mediation, so to speak, and we would help to identify what is the root cause of this problem by asking questions. When did this start? Um, Who all is involved? When did you start noticing this behavior? Those kinds of things. We would try to identify what the root cause is because otherwise we were just treating symptoms. We wanted to go down to what the root cause of the problem really is. In our text this morning, we're going to see God weighing in on our biggest problem doing some root cause analysis on our own problems. Not only are we going to see God identifying the biggest problem, but in our text this morning, God is really providing a solution for our biggest problem. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, and last week we discussed the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We see there in the first half of chapter 1. But, but this week, we get a narrative of the birth of this Christ. And in this passage, the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh and dwells among us. He breaks into our world and becomes the solution to our biggest problem. So let's look at our text this morning, Matthew 1, verse 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Jesus, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as, she, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph spoke, uh, woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, we have just finished a series in 
through the book of Colossians. And in that book, we talked about, as Paul brought to our attention, that we, uh, if you are in Christ, we, uh, we as followers of Christ have been transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. We've, been, we've left the domain of darkness and we have now been transferred into the kingdom of Christ. As we said, Matthew's gospel opens up with this genealogy of Jesus, like we discussed last week. And like all gospel writers, Matthew is going to make a point about Jesus. In the previous passage, he ma- he's making the point that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. He is the king, and he's bringing with him a kingdom. This is the kingdom that we have been transferred into, his kingdom. And Matthew is making that point in the first half of this chapter, that Jesus is the true king of the Jews. In fact, he's the king of the universe. But if you're paying close attention to this list, it's Joseph that is the rightful heir to the throne. It's Joseph's bloodline that's sitting on the throne of David. This presents a a problem for us in the gospel immediately. If you look back at verse 16 of chapter 1, just two verses prior to our passage, Matthew is very careful to step around saying Joseph was the father of Jesus. He doesn't say that. Instead, what he says is Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And any reader that's reading this critically would say, wait a minute, Matthew. Wait just a second. You're saying that Jesus is the king and the rightful heir to the throne, but he's not actually the son of Joseph. He's not in the bloodline of Joseph. Now, this is a significant issue because if Jesus is the illegitimate son of Mary, then Matthew can't rightfully claim that he is Joseph's firstborn to their throne, to the throne. So right out of the gate, the whole argument is done because he, he's not Joseph's heir. Matthew, in this passage, is doing a lot of things, but not least of which is showing us how God has uniquely solved this issue in the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew tells us that at the beginning of this passage. If you look there in verse 18, at the very beginning, he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So Matthew's giving us the story of the uniqueness of the birth of Christ. This happened in a very unique way, this birth of this Christ child. And in doing this, Matthew is going to resolve many of those questions that would be lingering in the air after the genealogy in chapter 1. And so this morning, I just want to point to three characteristics of the Messiah that Matthew brings to the surface in his person, his purpose, and his plan. First thing in his person, Jesus was born of a virgin. You look there in verse 18, he says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, a betrothal in the first, in first century Jewish society works a little bit like an engagement here, except it's much more serious. There's much more than simply just a ring that's placed on the finger. A betrothed couple is not merely engaged. They are legally bound together. 
They are bound to marry one another. And if the engagement is broken off, it has to be done so through the courts. It is considered a divorce if they break off a betrothal. That's why you see there in verse 19 where, Joseph, where it says he resolved to divorce her quietly. He had to do this legally in order to, to separate from Mary. So a first century Jewish couple essentially enters into what amounts to a contract where the groom agrees to pay the bride price. And then in the exchange, once that contract or that bride price is accepted by the groom and paid, then the couple consummates the marriage. And after the consummation of the marriage, then there is a celebration or a festival or a feast with family and friends, or what we would think of as a wedding. So if you think about this, it works exactly backwards from the way we do it. In our culture, there's first the engagement, then there is the wedding, which is the celebration, essentially, then there is the consummation, and then the groom pays the price. Um, I'm just kidding, ladies. Just, I'm just joking. <laughs> we removed all the rocks out of the room before I said that, so you can't throw them at me. So Mary and Joseph are in this contract, essentially, where Joseph is either, has either paid the bride price or is paying the bride price. And so they're legally married. But stage two, the consummation of the marriage has not happened yet. And lo and behold, Mary is pregnant. Now, Joseph is pretty sure he knows how this happened, as would be most of us. And just to be clear, the death penalty is allowable under Jewish law for somebody that has committed adultery. But remember, the Jews at this point are not under Jewish civil law. They are under Roman civil law. And adultery under Roman law is not punishable by death. And so they can't put her to death. So what are you supposed to do in first century? Well, you shame them publicly. It's the social death penalty, so to speak. And it's very obvious in the text. In fact, it's plainly stated that Joseph opts not to do this. He was unwilling to put her to shame, he says. So he resolved to divorce her quietly. And this probably has a lot to do with the fact that he was a just man. That the, that the author points out there, that Matthew points out there. He was a just man. He was kind. He was gracious. He adhered to the law. But he also had mercy on her. But so that there's no confusion in the story, we get clarification there in verse 20. That this was not a result of adultery. This is a divine and miraculous work. He says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the angel is saying to, uh, that Mary is pregnant, but no man was involved in the book of Luke. Mary is told that she's going to have a baby, and she asks the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? We see here the claim is the same in Matthew, essentially. that Mary is a virgin and who has conceived by virtue of a divine miracle. Now, why would this be necessary? Why is this necessary? That Mary be, or that, that Jesus be born of a virgin. Why is that, why is that necessary? Seems, it seems like a lot of stuff for, Je- for God to go through just to, to have this shot. Why is this necessary? I remember 
When Adam fell, the whole human race fell. We dealt with this a good bit in Colossians when we were there, but but it, it comes to bear here in Matthew as well that the reason that we are held liable for Adam's sin is because we are part and parcel of Adam's household. Adam serves as our federal head. He is the head of the whole human race. And when he fell, we fell. So everyone then, born of a man, is susceptible to the same guilt or held accountable to the same guilt as Adam. This is sometimes, I think, a bit of a difficult concept for us to grasp. Because we don't really think of sin this way. You're responsible for your sin. I'm responsible for my sin. We're responsible each for our own sin. How is it that I can be responsible for a sin that I, didn't, I wasn't actually there for, I didn't partake in? But I suppose the way that this would work is, is probably best illustrated by a family. Suppose a family fell into abject poverty, or perhaps they were just born into abject poverty. And let's put them in a, in a country where they can't win the lottery, or they can't strike it rich all of a sudden, or they can't move up classes. Let's put them in a place where they are stuck in their class in abject poverty. What happens to their children? Their children are born in abject poverty. What happens to their children's children? They're born into abject poverty. What happens to their children's children's children? They're born into abject poverty. It keeps repeating over and over, and really there is no way to escape. In a similar way, Adam subjected all of us, impoverished the whole human race into sin. Once the knowledge of good and evil came into the human race, we could never escape it. So much so that we could never get out of it. We were in a hole and there was no way to get out. And it's passed through the man's seed. Adam sins, we all Sin, he's our federal head. Now, if Jesus is conceived in the traditional way, he's unfit to save us because he is equally a part of our household as we are. He's impoverished with the rest of us. So he's born of a virgin and therefore he is not fallen. Adam is not Jesus' federal head. He's part of a brand new family. God is creating a new head in Jesus. And that's why it's necessary that he's born of a virgin. But then this poses another problem. Right? Joseph is of the line of David. Remember God's promise that we covered it last week, but God's promise to to David is that someone from his line will always be on the throne. He's going to establish his throne forever. So if that's the case and Jesus is born of a virgin, then how can we say that Jesus is now in line for the throne? Well, there, there are two answers that Scripture gives to that question. How is it that Jesus can be... Um, fit for the throne. The first answer is that Mary is also of the line of David, but by a different son. Joseph comes through Solomon. Mary comes through Nathan. And you can see that in Luke chapter 3. You can just write that down. We're not going to turn there right now, but you can read up on it later. And when you do, what you'll see is something very odd about the genealogy in Luke chapter 3. It lists the genealogy of Christ all the way back to Adam. And the person that's listed as his father, in parentheses it says, or so it was supposed, is Joseph. 
But what we have in Luke is simply the record of a genealogy, and that would go through the line of men. But what we have, no doubt, in Luke chapter 3 is Mary's genealogy. Though it points to Joseph being the son of Heli, it really means the son-in-law, what we would think of son-in-law, and that Mary is the daughter of Heli there in Luke chapter 3. So if Jesus is born of a virgin, how is he of the line of David? Well, the first answer in Luke 3 is, well, Mary was also of the line of David. Now, if you remember last week, I also mentioned that there is a curse that God has placed on David's line in the person of Jeconiah or Jehoiakim. There's a curse that's placed on him. He says, write this man down as childless. No child of Jeconiah will ever sit on the throne. So it appears that Joseph is of Jeconiah's line. And true enough, after Jeconiah left and got depart, de deported in, to Babylon, no child of his ever sat on a throne. The Jews didn't have a throne for them to sit on. And so here is Jesus, born of the blood of David, but around Jeconiah. So that a child of Jeconiah never sits on the throne but the line of David perseveres. So how is Jesus in the line for the throne of David? Answer number one is that the woman that he's born of is of the line of David. But answer number two is the one that Matthew is really concerned about and wants to address here in our text. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The answer that Matthew is implying here is that Joseph formally adopts Jesus into his family as his firstborn son. The angel tells him in verse 21, you can look back there, he says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And then uh, at the very end of the passage in verse 25, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So in Matthew and Luke, we, those are the only two gospels where we actually have a birth narrative for Jesus. And they're the only ones that are really concerned with giving us that background information. But Matthew is the only one that tells us twice here that Joseph would be the one to call his name Jesus. And so as Jewish law went, the parents would present their child before the priest on the eighth day to be circumcised at the temple. And there the name would be formalized by the parents. Now Luke is, is writing to a Gentile audience and he doesn't really call much attention to it. All he says is this in Luke 2.21. At the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then later... Luke shows the connection of these two as parents by simply calling them the parents, Joseph and Mary, to help convey the same thing that Matthew is saying here. But later in Matthew, the people around the family, as they're watching Jesus, they're going to say, is not this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this person that we're looking at here doing all these miracles and things? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the son of Mary? Isn't his, aren't his brothers Judas and James and Simon? Don't we know these people? So widely considered, all around the family, Joseph is not only naming this child, but he's adopting him as his own child. 
He's adopted into his family as his own son. And in doing so, Jesus fulfills the criteria of being the Savior of the world. He's, of the, he's in line for the throne by adoption through Joseph. He's of the line of David by blood through Mary. He's fit to be the Messiah. All of this may seem overly technical. And it may seem like things maybe that we haven't ever discussed before, that maybe you've never heard before. But it's very apparent that Matthew has made a tremendous claim in this first passage, the genealogy. And his aim is to now back up that claim in all subsequent chapters. He's going to do that for the rest of the book, really, is back up the claims that he made right out of the gate that this Jesus is the Christ. So if Jesus is going to be the Savior of the world, then he needs to match the description given to us in the Bible. And Matthew is saying he does. First, in his person, he's born of a virgin. Now, the second unique characteristic of the Messiah is in his purpose. Jesus solves our sin problem. That's his main goal. His main purpose is to solve our sin problem. Look at verse 21. He says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus For he will save his people from their sins. So the angel tells Joseph, you will call his name Jesus. And what does that name mean? What does the name Jesus mean? If you go all the way back to its original Hebrew meaning, Yehoshua, it means Yahweh is salvation. It's literally what his name means. And what kind of salvation is he providing? He's very clear here, salvation of his people from their sins. This is the battle that Jesus is coming to fight. This is squarely it. Why? Because this is our biggest enemy. This is the battle that we face. Day in and day out is our own sinfulness. Look, there is an entire world out there of people that have manger scenes on their mantles and in their yards, and they don't even stop to think about this very fact. As Christians, we, we can't truly celebrate Christmas without keeping an eye toward Easter. In fact, without Christmas, Easter isn't really possible. Resurrection Sunday isn't really possible. And without Resurrection Sunday, Easter doesn't make much, or Christmas doesn't make much sense. The incarnation of Christ doesn't really make much sense at all. The two were made for each other. We were talking about this issue this week in staff meeting, and and Tom pointed out, and I I didn't know this, that you can buy a Fisher-Price nativity set at Target. I didn't know that. You can buy a Fisher-Price nativity set at, at Target. He, he pointed this out to me. I Googled it later. It's actually true. You can do that. You can buy right now. It's fairly cheap, too. A Fisher-Price nativity set at Target. And that's not a commercial for Target. But I guarantee you what you won't find. Tom pointed this out as well. You'll never see a Jesus crucifixion set with a little cross and a little tomb. You'll never see that at Target. The world doesn't see the manger as a threat. It's a cute scene, donkeys and cattle, 
a woman and her husband, a little baby in a manger. It's not a threat. But that's because they haven't stopped to consider what it means. As we'll see next week, the watching world at that time did consider it a threat. Very much a threat. Understood what it meant. The angel is very clear right up front that Jesus is coming for the express purpose of saving his people from their sins. This is the central issue for which he came. Dealing with sin. But this is also important for where we live and the people that we minister to because sin in our culture has been put on the back burner if it's on the stove at all. And essentially what the story of Jesus comes to mean for our culture is someone just coming to show us a better way. To show us how to love. To, make it, to be an example for us. The story of the Son of God taking on human flesh and being conceived in a virgin's womb should remind us that our biggest enemy is our own sinfulness. It is the enemy that we cannot conquer on our own. It is absolutely impossible. And this is very much the reason why He came. To save us from our sin. And that he came in such a spectacular way. To suffer on a cross on our behalf. So that through faith we might not face the wrath of God. But we could be born into, reborn into a whole new family. This isn't God here doing cheap parlor tricks. Look at what I can do. I can create a a person without the need of a man. That's not what he's doing. This is the eternal God-man Jesus being born in the only way possible to both save us from our sin and endure the cross. It's the purpose for which he came, but it should also inform the way we minister to people around the world. There are... um, a number of mission agencies that their sole purpose is to dig wells in Africa. And that's great. We need to do that. We have to be engaged in that kind of work. But my fear is if we only do that and we don't make the gospel abundantly clear as we go, then we have only quenched their thirst temporarily. We have only solved a temporary problem. And while we should be doing that, we should also be making very clear the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us from our sin. We should also help them to see their own sinfulness. It should inform the relationships that we have with our family and our friends, especially around Christmas. This is particularly difficult for many of us. The family relationships that we have. I'm sure there's more than one of us that have been made makeshift counselor for our family or our friends during their time of difficulties. I know I'm not the only one. I know we're all brought into those difficulties sometimes. Marital difficulties that people are having. You're having to come in and be arbiter of the conversation, having to be counselor there. Can you name a marriage problem where sin hasn't played a part? 
there, isn't it? Now, it might be selfishness, it might be greed, it might be lust, it might be envy, it might be a whole host of other things that are rising to the surface. But whatever it is, I guarantee you, sin is at its root cause. If sinful hearts weren't in the picture, in other words, there wouldn't be a problem. The marriage would be perfect. So we even do our families and our friends a disservice when we only want to treat the symptoms of the difficulty. And we don't want to dig down to the root cause, the greed and the pride that's lying at its heart. Well, the problem is you're living together outside of marriage. No, the problem is sin. The problem is lust. The problem is a complete rejection of God's word. The problem is sin. It needs to be repented of, confessed, owned up to. In America, we have this libertarian spirit about us. I've noticed this about all of us as Americans. I think we have it in common, at least most of us anyway. We've been given these freedoms from our country, and we see people generally, generally as free beings. And that the government is really there for not to grant us freedoms, but to protect our freedoms. To, in, to basically ensure that we keep them, that no one else takes them from us. That's not the same in other countries. Oh, no. Government is there to give them freedom or take it away. So we've been truly blessed in our country when it comes to that. But I suspect when it comes to confronting sin our same American spirit probably gets the best of us. That we instead say, well, you do what you want to do. You you live life the way you want to live it, and I'll live my life the way that I want to live it. it. You have freedom, I have freedom. We don't really have to talk about all the difficulties. If that makes you happy and to live your life that way, then that's fine. I'll live my life this way, but we'll just agree to disagree. But that's not what we believe about the incarnation of Jesus. We believe that he's come to deal with sin and that this sin is a universal problem. This isn't my problem of sin that I've found a solution to in Jesus, but you find your solution wherever you want to find it. That's not what we're talking about. This is a universal problem of sin. You're dealing with it, and I'm dealing with it. And the only solution that anyone can come to is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it means that sometimes we have to engage in very difficult conversations with people. Sometimes it means that people are going to be very angry with us. We have to get it out of our heads that somehow we can truly love people and not tell them the truth. That we can call it love and not tell people that their sin is separating them from God and that one day they will die in eternal punishment in hell if they don't repent and believe in Christ. It is not loving to mislead them. It is not loving to not tell them the truth. And if we refuse to tell people this news, this good news, that they can have salvation in Christ, then we spit on the incarnation 
as if it doesn't really mean that much to the human race. As if it doesn't mean anything to the rest of us. And we're denying the real reason that Jesus came, which is to deal with sin. But this goes the other way too. We can't get offended when people call us out on our sin. It goes both ways. I can't be offended when people point at the sin in my own life. I have to be willing and ready to confess that sin and to own up to it and turn away from it. There's a growing trend in our society. It's probably been around forever and maybe we're just now noticing it. Maybe I'm just now noticing it. But there's this way we have in our language of owning up to sin without really owning up to it. Things like, I'm sorry if I offended you by what I said. I'm sorry if you were offended. That's not owning up to it. (laughs) Problems with them, right? I'm sorry if you were offended. That's a lot different than I'm sorry I offended you. What I said was wrong. We, of all people, should have a desire to kill sin and to have it identified in us so that we can root it out. Because the Savior we proclaim came for that very purpose, to save us from our sins. The angel tells Joseph, this is the reason for the incarnation. This is the reason that he has come. That Jesus can be uniquely suited for this task, to root out sin in our life, to solve our sin problem. Last unique characteristic of the Messiah is in the plan. Jesus was God's ultimate plan for salvation. Look at verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, Now Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14 here and in this in this verse, and there's a beauty in what Matthew is doing here, and, and I think there's two reasons that it's it's really amazing what he's what he's doing here. The first, if you have the ESV, you'll see there's a, a note by Matthew at the end of that quotation in parentheses that said that where he adds the translation of Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the ultimate Emmanuel, in other words. That's what Matthew is pointing out. He is the ultimate God with us. Not simply because he gives us some assurance of God's presence or that he's the presence of God in some metaphorical way, but that he is literally, physically, the presence of God dwelling here with us. That this Christ child that we see in the manger is fully God, fully man. See, only God coming down with us would suffice. Think about this for a second. Remember that man sinned. Man was the one that deserved death. That we as men are guilty, men and women, mankind, are guilty through Adam and Eve, through the sin of Adam. We are guilty and we deserve death and we deserve uh, eternal punishment forever. And if a man was to be given eternal life, that man would have to literally achieve the righteousness of God through works. He would literally have to live a perfect life. Life, Jesus is going to do this. 
the gospel writers are going to show us that Jesus lives this perfect life as a man. So if Jesus is going to become that righteous man and inherit those righteous rewards, he has to be fully man. He can't be half man. He has to be fully man in order to do that, in order to earn those rewards that would be given to a man. But, on the other side, Adam was fully man. He gave into temptation. I'm fully man. I give into temptation. You're fully mankind. You give into temptation. All of us sin. So a Savior, it becomes very clear, is not going to come merely from us. We can't do it. We have no ability to work out our own salvation in that way. So he also needed to be fully God, that he might perfectly endure temptation without sin. Something only God could do. He has to be fully God, fully man. So God the Son, in this little baby, takes on flesh to become our Messiah. And literally becomes God with us. Now, this quote is also perfect for another reason. The scene in Isaiah where that verse occurs is very tense. It's one of intense fear. See, King Ahaz is on the throne and he is scared to death because there are two kings of neighboring countries that have threatened him and have told him, we are going to put you to death and we're going to put a puppet on your throne that will do whatever we want him to do. Now, Ahaz is of the line of David, so you know automatically what God thinks of this plan, right? Here is Ahaz shaking in his boots, and Isaiah 7, 2, which is just, whatever, 12 verses ahead of that, of the, the verse that Matthew quotes, says this, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Ahaz and his people are scared. And so it's into this scene that God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz to assure him that God is with him. This prophecy is designed to give Ahaz comfort in the midst of this kind of scene. But it's not all good news for Ahaz. See, the king, he is the king of Judah, and Judah is going to be disciplined by the Lord. They're going to be judged over the, over the course of many, many years. But his assurance to Ahaz is, I am with you in judgment and salvation. I am the God of both judgment and salvation. But now as we look at Matthew quoting this verse... In Jesus, in this tiny little baby in the manger, is judgment and salvation. The difference is that instead of us bearing the blunt force of God's judgment, here is Jesus saying, I am with you in judgment and salvation, and I will bear the judgment of God so that you may have salvation. How powerful is that? He is the ultimate 
plan of salvation. He is God's solution to our greatest problem. Now, when it comes to applying this to our daily lives, it's really difficult. And it's not difficult because it's hard to find a way in which this applies. It's difficult to narrow it down to only a few, or we'd be here all day. Think about it this way. Jesus, being the Messiah, applies to everything that sin touches. Everything that sin touches is affected by Jesus being the Messiah. So just think about that in your own life. Everything that sin has touched in your own life, Jesus has something to say about that. There's nothing that it doesn't touch. So in Jesus, we see the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. We see someone who was miraculously conceived and adopted into the royal line of David and who set out from birth with his mission to save his people from their sins. So then the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we live as saved people? Are we living as people that are saved? Are we denying the sins in our own life? failing to own up to those sins. Whether they be sins in marital conflict, sins in the way we spend money, sins in the things that we look at online. Are we failing to own up to those sins and living as saved people? We see a person in Jesus who is fully God And yet fully man living a perfect life and willing to go to the cross for us. And there on the cross, he bears the wrath of God on our behalf for his people. That he might save them from their sins. And then he rose from the dead to do as 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, to save us from the wrath to come. This is the Savior that the world needs. This is the Savior that needs to be proclaimed. And we do a disservice by failing to confront sin head on. See, Jesus did not build his church for ooey-gooey, feel-good emotions. That's not the reason we're here. That's not the reason we convene every Sunday. We convene to weed out sin. That's the reason we get together, to praise the Lord for what he has done and to weed it out in our own lives. So that means we have to preach it from the pulpit and we have to live it out from the pulpit. We have to preach it from the pew and we have to live it out in the pew. I'm not preaching 10 ways to improve your marriage. I, I, I get that. And, and some of the things that we talk about is, is heavy theology. I, I realize that. But that's because when we read the Bible, in the main, God doesn't give us that. He gives us the gospel. Freedom from sin. He gives us confession of the wicked parts of our hearts. And through the preaching of His Word, He conforms us into the image of His Son. As slowly over time, He begins to weed out sin in our hearts. And then lo and behold, we look and our marriages improve. Amen. We look and our friendships improve. Workaholism starts to fade away. Lusts of the flesh start to fade away. Parenting 
improves. Our anger issues start to go away as sin is moved out to the margins. I don't want to spend our time together preaching to the branches. I want to go straight for the root our own sinfulness. And I want to attack it with the gospel and let the branches be informed by the root. After all, when we see this baby in this manger, that's exactly what we see. Someone that came to deal with the root and he set his church up to do the same. same. Proclaim freedom from sin. And if we are members of the body of Christ and we aren't doing battle with our own sin, then the baby in this manger means absolutely nothing to us, regardless of how many nativity sets we've got. The baby in the manger is more than a sweet feel-good story. It's a divine miracle. It's the beginning of the whole story that would change the world. God in the flesh taking on our sin and delivering those who believe from the wrath to come. Now, don't lose that message in the pomp and circumstance of Christmas. This is the very reason for which he proclaimed. Instead, proclaim it to your families that this Jesus that we're celebrating in the coming week is confronting our sins head on. And this is the Messiah that we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, words cannot express how grateful we are for the incarnation of Christ. For the eternal Son to take on flesh and dwell among us. To deal with sin on our behalf. Lord, I pray for conviction. Expose the deep, dark recesses of our heart. Let it be made public. That in that exposure, we would be free of it. That in the confession of our sins, we would experience, we would taste salvation. That along with the conviction, we would also feel the grace and mercy that you have extended to us. Lord, I know that this time, this season, is not a happy one for everybody. I pray that the peace and comfort that we would feel would be in that we know you and that we have salvation and that we can trust our King and our Messiah. It's in his name we pray. Amen.